you know, I guess I don't have an opinion because I don't think we needed the bill of block for power <laughs> reasons. Yeah. Um, but the bill of block from understand 70 pounds lighter. So it's actually the cheapest weight reduction mod wow. we've done on the car in a long time. Welcome along to the Tuned In Podcast, I'm Andre your host and on this episode we've got Lucas from English Racing joining us. Now, English Racing is a big name particularly in the Mitsubishi tuning scene, it is a company that I looked up to when I was starting my tuning business STM back in the day. Not just because I was heavily involved in the Mitsubishi 4G63 drag racing world but I really liked what they were doing. They have an amazing reputation we got the chance to sit down with Lucas and talk about 4G63s versus 4B11s. Lucas and English Racing have what at the time of recording is either the second or third fastest late model Evo with their Evo 8 uh, around about a 7.70 192 mile an hour and their Evo 10 is currently the fastest in the world. So we got the opportunity to talk to Lucas about what makes these cars so fast and it's really interesting because we get into the detail that as a casual observer maybe looking at the four wheel drive fastest drag racing lists or social media you just don't get to learn about particularly around launch strategies how Lucas is getting these cars to 60 foot his use of the electronic or drive-by-wire throttle body in order to control boost and control the launch, controlling torque, uh, reducing clutch slip and a host of other aspects. We also talk about launch strategies in terms of using the wastegate, fuel cut, ignition cut and a bunch of other stuff. How to keep a 4G63 engine together, pros and cons of billet blocks versus cast and of course the debate, the 4B11 versus the 4G63, which one is better. So any Mitsubishi fans out there are going to get a huge amount of information out of this podcast. But if you're just interested in learning how cars go so quick on the drag strip, there's still some great takeaways in there too. Before we get into that, I just wanted to talk about a social media post we put on our Instagram a little while back, which is relevant to today's topic. And if you're not following us on social media, Make sure you do. We are HPA101 on Instagram. So this was a photo we took a while back now at World Time Attack in Australia and it is of a billet engine block. This one specifically is a 2JZ block. However, uh, Bullet Race Engineering who made that block also make 4G63, SR20 and a host of other blocks. Every time we mention this, there's the age-old debate comes up. Well, is it really a 4G63 slash 2JZ slash insert your favourite brand of billet block here uh, when it's no longer a factory part, factory component? And I mean, yes, there's an argument for that, but at some point with particularly the likes of the 2JZ and RB boys and girls there pushing 2,000 plus wheel horsepower, at some point the factory block is uh, just no longer strong enough. Now, I know that it seems pretty self-explanatory that the billet block is going to be stronger, but there are some other benefits that maybe aren't quite so obvious. One of the ones that Lucas talks to us today about 
is the actual weight saving. And that's actually one of their prime drivers between behind going to the billet block in their Evo 8. Uh, off the top of my head, I think he said that they saved around about 70 or 80 pounds of weight, which is pretty significant. And it's actually quite a cost-effective way of doing so. Another aspect there is while the block is stronger, yes, one of the big problems we see in small capacity engines running a lot of boost pressure is head gasket sealing. It's another topic we talked to Lucas about today, but one of the benefits with going from a factory cast block to a billet block is we end up with a much thicker deck surface, which is the surface of the block where the head gasket seals to the cylinder head. The thicker that surface is, the more rigidity it has, the less it's likely to move under very high cylinder pressure. So it actually is a massive benefit in sealing the cylinder head onto the block, at least in my own experience with our drag racing program, the head gasket sealing was really the limiting factor there. So if again, if you're not following us on social media, make sure you do so. We try and put out some really interesting information uh, just about every day of the week. Now, if you haven't heard of HPA before, High Performance Academy, we are an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune engines, build engines, and also build quality, reliable wiring harnesses. Relevant to today's topic, if you are a 4G63 fan and you're interested in building your own engines, we have our practical engine building course. And by the time this episode airs, uh, we'll also have a complete worked example on the 4G63. So it leverages heavily on my own experience building world record holding 4G63s and it takes you through the HPA 10 step process. This is a simple step by step process that you can apply to building any engine. The specific worked example then goes ahead and applies that obviously on the 4G63. This is an Evo 9 engine but it's going to be applicable almost irrespective of what model 4G63 you're building. And as a special bonus you can and use the coupon code podcast75 that's going to get you 75 US dollars off the purchase of your very first HPA course and we'll drop a link in the description that you can follow to grab that course and get your $75 off voucher. Alright enough talking though let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Now, the English racing name is one that's been around for a fairly long time, and I know when I got involved in the 4G63 platform, uh, it was a very, very well-respected name, still is, let's be honest. But can we maybe get a, a really quick history on how you got involved in racing, tuning, engine building, etc., and uh, maybe how English racing got formed? Sure. So I guess that goes back um, early 2000s. Um, I started, I guess, tuning, I guess, you know, being a pilot since I was 16 with my dad. And that might have what got me into, uh, you know, understanding air fuel. Not, well, obviously, airplane, it's uh, exhaust temperatures, but you're always tuning the airplane as you're going up in elevations. Um, I would say in two... 2000 is when I got myself a 1992 uh, Eagle Talon all-wheel drive, which had the uh, 4G63 in it, and the addiction pretty much hit right there. It already had a 16G turbo on it. Um, I put a Super AFC in it, got what they called back then a pocket logger for data logging and seeing what knock is, and then just started breaking stuff. Um, so I would, you know, kind of raced 
broke lots of transmissions. Um, <laughs> 2004 is when I, 2003, I started fixing all my own transmissions and then started doing transmissions for people locally and then started uh, my company officially in 2004. And we just started out of my garage um, at my house. We're technically still work out of a much bigger shop that's at my house, but um, it is in my backyard. And so it just started with the, uh, it's, I guess it's been interesting for me. I've always been about the budget. How fast can you go for how little? So I guess a classic DSMer. And then somehow I've attracted customers that want the opposite of what I think is uh, what we should be doing. So anyway, um, you know, early on I was, you know, I ran like a 12.3 at 110 and like my wife's uh well, in a stock 14B uh, turbo, you know, full weight, um, you know, I did a lot of pump gas and methanol. So I used to actually do stock injectors on my eclipses and I would inject enough methanol to produce, you know, 500 horsepower. And so I ran, you know, high tens, um, I think 2006 or seven in my Talon. And um, so that's where it uh, started. We, I guess, I've had some good friends. TJ, that's been with me forever, um, started doing my motors. I taught him how to do transmissions, and um, our teams never looked back. I guess so. The business has essentially evolved from from a passion and, and growing around you as as you've progressed. You totally, yeah. It was. It's just about, uh, I guess, the passion of the platform, and then you know, keeping. I guess I've always had a passion for keeping customers happy, which of course is highly frustrating in this industry since uh, I think the word I use would be professionally uh, total cars for a living. <laughs> it can be challenging for sure. Yeah. Let's come back to your choice of the uh, Talon Eclipse platform. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a, not a car that we actually ever got here in New Zealand. We were sort of blessed and cursed with the Japanese domestic market model. So essentially we had uh, Galant VR4 and then moved into the Evo 1 to 3 and, and onwards and upwards from there. Uh, and you know, when it comes to choosing a car at that level, I'm sure you had a bunch of options. So was there a specific strategy that, that took you down that path of the 4G63 Talon Eclipse or is that just a, a lucky coincidence that you fell on your feet with that, that platform? Um, so I don't think it was completely lucky. I guess, you know, the late 90s, um, you know, I guess my uh, good friend, I guess brother-in-law, um, got like an 87 5 liter with some exhaust, you know, so we burned lots of rubber and spun cookies for days and that. So I, I would assume that uh, 5 liters, what kind of really got the power bug. Of course, my first car out of high school was just like an 89 Accord, you know, and I was like any dumb kid you know i pulled the e-brake every second i could and and so uh so i guess uh late 90s we did a um ls swap into my buddy's cx civic which only ran a 14.9 but seemingly in you know 2000 that was pretty novel at that time and then i guess i had a a, a friend named tom hartshorn who started a shop called state attuned and he was of course a 4g63 guy um you know, I've, anyway, he kind of had all the DSM lists and how fast they can go. So I guess talking to him one day at the shop and looking at what the car was capable of, um, it just seemed like that was a cool car to get and it made sense. And so I went and found one and bought it. And then, uh, you know, we were about ready to do a, like a GSR swap and I had a 92 Civic hatchback 
And, um, but either way, I bought the Talon and just, uh, yeah, broke a lot of stuff. I think it, it, it is safe to say the 4G63, though, it, to, to luck onto that platform, uh, not discounting other ones out there, but but it has proven to be just about an infinitely tunable platform. And looking back at sort of when I first got into Evos and drag racing, I mean, everyone looks at what we did and, and thought that I had this long-term affinity to the Mitsubishi brand, but the reality was I was pretty analytical in my approach. I, I looked at the options that were four-wheel drive that we had easy access to in New Zealand and it came down to the Evo 1-3 to or the same generation at that time, Subaru STI and I looked at how many broken STIs I saw around and uh, how fast the 4G63s were going and that, that was really what I based my decision on. Not trying to knock the, the EJ series engine, I mean those obviously can be built strong and powerful as well but yeah, looking looking at the options, the 4G63 seemed like a, a no-brainer to me. Uh, Fast forwarding, obviously you, you've now got uh, a Evo 8 that uh, somewhere either, either second or third fastest in the world with a 770 at I think uh, was at 192 mile an hour. You've also got the fastest outright Evo 10 in the world running 790 at uh, 185 mile an hour. So so things have come a long way. Before we get into those two vehicles, you just mentioned that uh, your Talon Eclipse had a an SAFC or Super AFC in it. So mm. a, a lot of our listeners probably have no idea what that unit is. And <laughs> it's, it's sort of a little bit laughable because I've, I've, yeah. I've seen a number of those come across my dyno back many years ago. Uh, I haven't seen one for a while, thankfully, but can you tell us what it is and how it works? Sure. So, um, you know, those cars, of course, we didn't have speed density. I guess if you were a baller, you would buy the HKS uh why can't I think of the name of that? There's uh... so either way, I was the cheap guy. So you you got your maths. You do a two G math, or you take the one G one and you like chop it in half. And so when you start messing with the math, then of course that's what runs the car and the fueling. So the Super AFC, you connect the throttle position, you connect to uh, you know in between the the math signal, and then. Um, and then RPM of the engine, and you basically add or subtract math signal to get what you want. And so that can be a scary game in some of those cars. So if you did maybe injectors that were too big, and then you had to pull out too much on the math, but you know, in, the, in those times, I didn't realize what load was necessarily in ECU. But of course, nowadays, where an Evo 8 stock computer would be running, let's say, the 300 load area. You know, we were probably pulling some of those talons out into the 180s or something. So then, of course, ignition timing would be through the roof. Um, so, so basically, the Super AFC are just fiddling with the uh, um, with the math signal, cheating the inputs to the factory ECU. Yeah, to the lying factory to ECU, it. lying to it exactly. And, and I think that the part that a lot of people overlook, which you just mentioned there. It is easy to overlook when you're when you're tweaking that load signal that that the ECU is basing its fuel and ignition on. The ignition right. is also being altered, and when yeah. you cheat that by pulling that load signal down, it advances <clears throat> the timing. So a few engines have been damaged in that way. I assume you're running a good fuel, so that's how you could get away with this and get yourself a little bit more of a a wider tuning envelope. Yeah, I guess. Uh, like, well, the methanol injection was popular back then. Um, you know, some of like. My wife's car I spoke of, you know, we just stuck straight race gas in it and ran yeah. the timing. It was probably 30-some degrees or some crazy number, you know. Um, 
The other thing on the 1G is obviously had an adjustable cam sensor. So you would literally just, you know, base timing is five, you might go zero or negative five or do what it needed. So typically for me, I did a lot of street tuning back in the day. You'd have a, a wide band and then you'd have, a, I used the little pocket logger that would show me the knock. When, and honestly, that was very accurate, I feel like. And uh, I'd go out if it's knocking, I would uh, retard the timing. Yep. I also feel that a lot of two older school tuners, that's where this uh, thought that a richer air fuel ratio got rid of detonation. And I feel that a lot of tuners on that came from back in the day didn't realize by you know running the running it richer that they were actually then running lower emission timing, timing. right? Yeah, yeah. And so then um, I know once you get up like I know the air fuel ratio is critical for like a half mile and long poles, but you know all of us tuners with dying fuel pumps have seen all kinds of stuff that. You know, if you're at an 11.5 air fuel, you're not going to go to a 10.5 and miraculously get rid of detonation usually. Yeah, I agree. I think that is – I haven't really sort of talked about that too much so far, but, I mean, it is definitely something I hear talked about a lot. Well, we're rich in the air fuel ratio, and, and that'll get rid of detonation. And I think exactly what you're saying there, 11.5 to 1 down to 10.5 to 1. Uh, chances are you're going to just be um, pumping black smoke out the exhaust and uh, you'll fall off a cliff in terms of power. But right. um, yeah, th- there's levels to this stuff. Obviously, if you're you're on the, the knife edge, then yes, the air fuel ratio affects the combustion chamber temperature or combustion charge temperature, right. which in turn is going to influence detonation. But uh, yeah, it's not a, how would you put it, not a silver bullet to fix knock, is it? Right. Well, and to me, I guess if you're to the point in a pull where the richer air fuel is going to fix the motor, it's probably already fell apart or falling apart. Like it's not, um, I guess in my mind, it's, uh, you know, first through third gear, you're probably not going to blow up a motor from air fuel ratio. You get the motor mm. in the top of fourth gear or especially half mile stuff. And then maybe the air fuel ratio could have an effect on the temperature. But yeah, uh, sure. ultimately octane boost and timing are the, to me, the, absolute most most critical and air fuel ratio is definitely important but it's not as important as uh those others sure yeah get the get the basics right and obviously with uh these high boost high power applications specifically in a small capacity engine uh, mm-hmm. octane is really your friend you want, you want as much of that on board as you can get exactly exactly all right so the safc uh as I say, I haven't seen one for probably the better part of a decade, and I'm not unhappy about that. They, they served a purpose, but it's uh, it's kind of like I would say probably trying to perform brain surgery with a meat cleaver. It's uh, it's a pretty brutal way of getting the job done, and it, it doesn't it doesn't offer for a lot of finesse. Obviously, yeah. across your career, you've seen massive advances in electronics, particularly. So, how how critical? has the advances we've seen in the latest crop of engine management systems been and, and you guys being able to do what you're doing now, setting world records on the quarter mile and uh, half mile? I guess it's uh, it all just goes together because like obviously back when we were doing super AFCs, I mean, if you're making 350 wheel, you're pretty cool, you know, and if you're over 400 wheel, you're maybe extra cool. So, so, yeah. so now, you know, it's like normal is almost 500 and – you know, and then I guess the extra normal might be 700 on a four cylinder. And then, of course, if guys are wanting to push limit to a thousand. Um, so I guess 
I can't even think about trying to do what I do today on a Super AFC. I mean, if a Talon no. showed up with a six, 16G on it and some 550s and a MAF and a Super AFC, I'd sure, we'd probably get the job done fine. And that's a 320-horse car, and we're just barely playing with something. Of course, we don't do that here. We wouldn't touch an AFC because there's so many you know, you just have to, you know, it's DSM link at a minimum if we're doing a, sure. uh, an eclipse or whatever. So I would say it all, you know, even our stock computers, we do, you know, 800 horse on stock computers. But, you know, we try to steer people to the standalones for the air fuel safeties and oil pressure safeties and, you know, coolant temperature safeties and actual data logging. So if something breaks or goes wrong, they can actually send you something back, you know, yeah. versus a stock computer it might work fine on the dyno. And then the customer has a problem and you're like, well, you got to get the laptop out and you got to get, you know, or get good with your SD card and your little tear tracks cable. And, and so anyway, um, the standalones are definitely, uh, you know, in my opinion, if we're over 600 wheel, I'm definitely pushing a little harder for a standalone. So the the factory engine management will do it, but uh, it, it's the the additional the logging and the safety parameters really that that's your key advantage, as you see it, at around that power level for right. the standalone. Right, and then of course, if you're into really into drag racing, then of course I'm you know a MoTeC fan all the way, and then there's of course you know launch leash strategies in there, and sure. of course the drive by wire stuff. And so there's a lot of things that, sure, we can make the power on the dyno. I mean, we made a thousand horse on a stock computer and you, you can go out and roll race it, but you try to put that on a two-step and launch it and get stuff to work right, it's not going to probably work very well. Yeah, I, I think the, the data logging as well, particularly when you're making that sort of power and you know, at least for the first half of the track, you've probably got more power than you could put to the track is, is all about sort of doing a pass and then looking at the data, figuring out how much more you've got up your sleeve in terms of traction and then fettling the power delivery, which right. is not impossible to do on a factory engine management system, but definitely, again, it's going to back to that meat cleaver analogy. <laughs> you don't really have the finesse to do it uh, mm-hmm. to the same level you've got maybe with some of the, the smarter aftermarket standalone exactly. ECUs. And- yeah, I even... Actually, I want back when I used to even race my. I had a stock Evo eight that made five hundred twenty two wheel that ran like a ten eight at one twenty eight at thirty three hundred pounds on a stock turbo. Yeah. And when I used to race that car, I'd actually would launch half throttle, and then shift second half throttle, and then floor at the top of second. You know, when I was on the stock computer, just you to know. do your own uh, right drop power management. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, exactly. it's definitely. I mean, it's doable, but it's a hard way to get consistent passes right. when you when you're trying to manage it all with the right foot. Exactly. Okay, so let, let's talk about your sort of uh, moves into the the more serious drag racing. I've I've briefly mentioned the the two sort of cars. Maybe right now you're you're best known for. Let's start with the the Evo Eight because that one's probably a little bit closer to to my own heart. Uh, given that um, we we did back in the day build a car that uh, that held the late model Evo world record, albeit uh, well and truly eclipsed now by a number of cars. Uh, so what what does it take to get a, a 4G63 powered Evo 8 into the 7s? Well, you definitely have to have a beer can of a car, I feel like. So light. Mm-hmm. Um, horsepower-wise, you know, I've, what, 12, 12, 1,300 horsepower is kind of where we're at, of course, partially because we can't, 
you know, our biggest nemesis has been our 60 foot trying to get the car to launch smooth. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously if we can someday, you know, get our 60 foots into the low one twos or high one ones, then of course, you know, just 11, 12, but right now we're having the back half of the cars a bit, which just put the power down to kind of drive around our lack of a 60 foot, which we're hoping that we've, we've been making a lot of changes there and doing testing this last year. So I'm hoping this world cup, we might be able to look pretty, uh, a lot better in that department. All right. So you, you just dropped a bunch of terms that um, probably yeah. those <laughs> who aren't heavily involved in drag racing, we have no idea what we're talking about. So first of all, I mean, a lot of people looking at it would be thinking, well, if you want to go faster and quicker, well, just add power. And, and well, yes, that works to a point. And if you want to run in the sevens, you're going to need a lot of power, as you just mentioned. But right. it, it's that challenge about getting the car to the 60 foot, which as its name implies, is uh, a marker or a timer that is 60 foot from the start line and, and kind of we use that as a bit of a, a line in the sand as how well the car is leaving the line and getting its power down uh, now I, I always worked on the basis and it's probably only a rough rule of thumb but if you can pick up a tenth of a second to the 60 foot so in other words get the car from leaving the start line to that 60 foot a tenth of a second quicker basically that's going to give you about two tenths at the end of the track D- does that sort of work with what you you see I would say so. I think I've even heard people say three tenths, but yeah. definitely two tenths. So, so I would uh, agree with that for sure. So the key, the key point there is, it's a much easier way to get a quicker ET to get the car yeah. out to the sixty foot faster or quicker than yep. it is to try and do it down the deep end of the track, but where you're trying to exactly. hit it with a big old sledgehammer with a heap of power. Right. Right. And so that's where the weight also is so critical because like when we first started racing the 10, it was full weight. And of course we didn't have the transfer case control or the, the ACD, which is what kind of lock, you know, the 10 doesn't have a viscous coupler that locks the front to rear. And so anyway, like our first time at world cup, I think we broke three rear ends and one transfer case, you know? And so, uh, but seemingly getting these cars lighter, a lot of those failures seem to be, get further and further away from, you know, they don't happen yeah. near as often. Yeah. So, All right. So let's come back to sort of talking about this this relationship between power, which we need for the, the deep end and the, the big mile an hour. Uh, but we go too far with that side of things with too big a turbo that that makes the car harder to get out of the hole, harder to launch. And that hurts that 60 foot. So can you tell us why it's not a case of just slapping the biggest turbo uh, we can find in the catalog on the engine and, and sending it? Right. So that's, I think the biggest nightmare for everybody, which I'm probably going to have a lot of uh, good things to maybe educate some people on in this area. So one of the things that, you know, you notice, especially World Cup finals, you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, a lot of valve issues, cylinder issues. Like you walk down through the World Cup finals race and, you know, many of the imports will have the cylinder heads off like mm-hmm. every, every night. Um, so one of the, obviously all the cars we run are a, uh, are a true twin scroll, which I've learned from like dealing with uh, Jeff Bush's automatic eclipse back in the day that the twin scroll in the... You know, third gear, side by side, you can't hardly tell a darn difference with it. Mm-hmm. And of course, even once you're revving it out, banging gears, you can't tell a difference. But you give twin scroll an extra, you know, four or five seconds, it does things at lower RPM that you might not known was possible. So like uh, Jeff Bush's Eclipse, it was a single scroll tile. 
on the autom- automatic, you know, we were having to try to hold it back at almost 6,000 RPM, which if you know anything about DSM automatics, that's really a challenging RPM to be at. You know, then you got a lot of nitrous going on. And when we went to the twin scroll in that car, we were able to produce 50 pounds of boost at like 3,800 RPM. Okay, so Which, that's that's just as a result of the the way the exhaust gas is introduced to the turbine wheel with the twin scroll versus a, a single entry turbine? Right. right, but it just, most of the time people think twin scroll spools faster, and I would say most manual transmissions on the street, if you put it in fifth, it, yeah, it'll spool way sooner, yeah. but if you're banging some gears, you can't, you know, usually the twin scroll hurts top end power by a decent mm-hmm. amount, and you can't tell a difference. So one of the things I also feel, you know, we come back to talk about anti-lag. Um, I guess I'll start out with first thing I'll talk about wastegate stuff. So I'm a big proponent of the wastegate on a small import engine to be closed. And a lot of these cars on the anti-lag will do boost control at the line using the wastegates. And um, I've even done like back in the day of that little automatic, I had a little automatic eclipse that ran a, like 960 on a 16G. Okay. That's so ama- amazing, along. amazingly fast. And I did some interesting tests on that because trying to hold that car back on the whip at the line and the two, it was really a challenging thing because it would just want to yard through the brakes. It was a stock stall converter car. Sure. And I did a test on that where I took um, the wastegate line and I had it on a wastegate line at 10 pounds. And I actually ran a T into the cab and I actually had my finger on the wastegate line. And the second I let off the brake, I just let off the wastegate line. So I went from 10 pounds to pulled wastegate line. Okay. Cars dramatically slower. Like the, anytime you have big wastegate changes where it has to essentially kind of respool the turbo, you've like, we're really taking a lot of power away. Um, mm. So I've, re- that's where we come into this throttle thing. That's pretty key to my system. So I feel for on an anti-lag system, if you start getting over, so let's back up. If I'm on like, you know, uh, gas or ethanol, I'll use a fuel cut strategy. Um, so I'll do a fuel cut first before mm-hmm. the ignition. And I find that creates a nice crispy car. But you start getting over 25, 30 pounds of boost on an ignition-based anti-lag. And it's really just a flooded out, pissed off engine. And so then a lot of these guys you'll see at the track, I mean, they're rev launching at 8,000. They're just at crazy RPM, and they're really are just driving around an engine that's flooded out, in my opinion. Like, it sounds cool as shit at the line. Sorry, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. But but it's really not. And then, of course, it's – and if you think about it, some of these cars are you know, building 30, 40 pounds of boost. When you look at your injector duty, you're sitting there at 40, 50% injector duty. And you're producing zero horsepower, sure. right? So, so it's you're just, just a really massive amount of fuel just running through the engine. Through the engine, and so um, you know, we're able to. My strategy on methanol, of course, as I still I do the ignition cut, but once I approach about twenty five pounds of boost, I actually start closing my throttle. Okay. And so then I do my, and then of course the second the car moves, then my throttle will go to where I want it to go. Um, so my cars. The Evo, when I ran the 770 in the Evo 8, we were launching at 5,500 RPM and it yeah. it comes out like a stock turbo. Okay. Right. All right. So again, so, you, you just dropped a, a whole a whole bunch well, more information in there <laughs> yeah. that I think we, we need to go back and unpack. So first of all, just really quickly for those who, who haven't, you know, sort of schooled themselves up on what this anti-lag is, I call it 
two-step with drag racing. It kind of just gets away from that confusion about a rally-style anti-lag, which is off-throttle. Yep. So we use this when the driver's traditionally at the start line at full-throttle clutch in, uh, and we're using ignition retard and fuel or ignition card or sometimes both in order to basically spool the turbocharger because we're getting combustion effectively occurring in the exhaust system. So that drives the turbocharger, which is how we can get these massive turbos producing 20, 30, 40 PSI of boost when the car's not moving. So just, just to clear that up. Now I want to talk about the different strategies with fuel cut and ignition cut because it's interesting that mm. you said you're using fuel cut in some of the fuels you're you're using. Um, you, you're still using an ignition cut as well because my, my own experiments with this is that if you want to get, if you need to spool a big turbocharge and provide a lot of energy, the ignition cut is, is hugely more effective because we do actually need the unburned fuel and air going through into the exhaust yeah. system. So how, how are you sort of, are you still using some so, ignition cut? Uh, you know, so I would agree like in the hall techs I've dealt with and stuff that anytime I try to bring the fuel cut in it, yeah, it just kills the heat. Mm. You don't get the spool. But for some reason on the MoTeC, I guess I might have to look closer However, it does its randomizer, like I'll set the fuel cut at it, it's a number of 100. So once I go 100 RPM, I guess above my target RPM, it'll start the fuel cut. And then mm-hmm. I can start the ignition cut 500 above. But it actually still, it still functions. Like it's it still builds boosts, you know, and I guess I'd have to look closer to see where the ignition. I know that when I try to bring the two together, like let's say I try to put a fuel cut on top of an ignition cut that typically creates explosions that are not nice. Like mm-hmm. it's not a, it's, it seems like I have to be one or the other. So trying to bring it in. So okay. either way, however, the motor tech does its strategy. Seemingly I can, let's say set my fuel at hundred and I set my ignition at 500 and yep. um, it, uh, you know, and it pulls its timing and it just does its job okay. and it sounds normal. So um now you just mentioned there as well about uh, it's not nice on the engine some of these big explosions and that, that's another point I think a lot of people overlook yeah it, it sounds cool as hell uh, when you've got a car there popping and banging on the two step limiter and flames are coming out the exhaust but mm-hmm. the, the bit that's easy to overlook is that's creating depending on how aggressive that strategy is it's creating huge pressure spikes in the exhaust manifold between the turbine wheel and the exhaust valves and particularly with an engine that in stock form uses hydraulic lifters like the 4G63 mm-hmm. that in and of itself can be problematic so can you just talk right. us through about some of the downsides that you can see with that so on the 4G63 I guess I have a um, uh, you know if Right now, for keeping rockers on, if I'm over, let's say, 40 pounds of boost, I don't allow our car to hit a rev limiter except for the shift cut. So it seems mm-hmm. like if you're under 30 pounds of boost, your rockers will stay on. But you start getting 40, 50 pounds of boost, and you're driving. So if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to rev my engine high, let's make the rev limiter you know, 9,700. Well, if you're at 70 pounds of boost, and you drive a 4G63 straight into a 9,700 RPM rev limiter, your rockers are just coming off. Yeah. And so, and so, um, you know, now we have the revelers at like 12,000 and then I actually just cut, I closed the throttle at 11,000. So and finding so, a softer uh, way to limit the engine's, the exactly. engine's speed. And I think that, you know, the Evo 10, of course it doesn't have rockers to chuck, but if you, I think all of these engines, when people are losing compression and they're losing valves, they're all battling the same issue. It just happens a 4G63 chucks a rocker off when it gets into that spot. 
And essentially, for, for those who maybe aren't quite following along there, the, what, what you're getting is these limiters, we've got fuel and ignition cut. Again, you get that situation where you can potentially have a, an explosion occur in the exhaust manifold. The pressure then can overcome the valve springs on the exhaust side and actually pop an exhaust valve back open, which can have pretty nasty consequences. If you're really unlucky, you could tag the piston. But in most instances, you end up with a situation where that rocker pops off, which you've just mentioned. The hydraulic lifters, you're probably not running them at that level, but a minimum, uh, the, the lifter's also going to pump up and then you lose all compression on that cylinder, even if the rocker stays on. Is that yeah, sort we of- are actually, you know, we might have just went to solid, but we've actually been doing hydraulic, but we've been plagued by rocker issues. Sure. And, um, you know, one thing that I remember talking to Kigley, uh, Kigley Racing, you know, he has a fast front wheel drive 4G63 kind of a, um, you know, he does the automatic stuff, but he's done some, uh, he's kind of an engineering type guy. And I think he wanted to tell me that sometimes explosions can be as high as 300 and some PSI in the exhaust manifold. So yeah. then it doesn't matter what valve spring you have or what, you know, nothing, which You're I, not I would coming that because we started out at, you know, 90 pounds of seat pressure and we've been up to 150 pounds of seat pressure and yeah, all kinds of different things. And it just seems like uh, when you get up into that high uh, boost level, high power level, and then you're running all over rev limiters, it ends up being a bad deal. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. And I think any time you can stay away from a limiter, that that's going to be beneficial and, and a bit of that is your tuning strategy but a lot of that also goes down to uh, educating the driver particularly if you're tuning for a customer um, just just sending it out the door with a 12,000 rpm rev limiter <laughs> without a bit of driver education might also not end that well well i think honestly though with the way i do the tuning on the motec that's i try to take everything away from the yeah. driver because even the best of us can um, do something wrong so either way i have the throttle the throttle will shut down um, the other thing on the Motec that I realized was a feature is kind of a, a I'll call it a stupid rev limiter, but it has an engine warning. And so I can basically say if I hit 11,000, that the engine won't should turn back on until 8,000 or sure. 9,000. And so rather than it just sitting up there bumping off a crispy rev limiter, it's just going to shut off yeah. essentially. Yeah. And so, um, like someone turned the key off. Right. And so I think I've been kind of implementing that feature into some of, because I do a 600, actually, I think we did almost 700 horse Hayabusa um, drag ATV that I tuned that's had valve problems throughout the years. Okay. And so we've implemented, because he doesn't have drive by wire. So I've implemented that strategy okay. into his. So. All right, so let's come back and we'll sort of keep coming full circle here, but you've dropped a hell yeah. of a lot of information that I just want to <laughs> cover off. So you've talked about not using the, the wastegate on the exhaust during mm-hmm. that, that launch phase and you're building yep. boost and then keeping the, the exhaust wastegate closed and yep. controlling the boost with the the. The throttle position. Uh, Back in the day, I did some experimentation. So we found that if you're using a two-step strategy, particularly one with the ignition cut, you you tend to, it's effective, but if you're trying to control the boost with the wastegate, you tend to get this sort of oscillation and the boost pressure. So it can be oscillating two or three PSI, which makes it very difficult when you drop the clutch on a a high versus a low. That's a hell of a lot of difference in the engine power. So consistency takes a hit. So we went to the blow-off valve, uh, sorry, wastegate mounted on the the, uh, charge plumbing Mm -hmm. instead, which tended to be a bit smoother. so the th- the electronic throttle better again. 
You know, I haven't used it on the wastegate pipe. Um, you know, so basically our wastegate, uh, I try to also have the, you know, as I start to build boost, I'm adding, actually adding timing. So I might pull 30 degrees of time and you get things going in a hurry. And then yep. once I get up about 15 to 20 pounds, you know, then I'll be down to like zero degrees of timing. So nothing crazy. And then I just have, it's a simple table. It has vehicle speed that John Reed writes with vehicle speed across the top and it's boost to the left. And then I have a um, throttle position in the middle Okay. or is the data table. And so, you know, we're hundred percent throttle until probably 15 pounds. And then I go, you know, 90, you know, I'd say by 20 pounds, I'm down to 70% throttle. And then I have, that's definitely a tuning thing you have to play with. Cause if you start having the, if you chop the throttle too much, then it'll start chasing your tail. But most of our cars are leaving on like 45 to 60% throttle okay. is, is about the happy spot. And it's pretty darn smooth. Um, I've also had different ECUs in a way they do two steps in the past, like, you know, AEM, like, you know, series two AEMs and stuff that just aren't as smooth as the MoTeC is anyway. So the MoTeC for me has been a much smoother ECU. Everything stays pretty darn stable. Yeah. I do, I do think it's, it's worth mentioning here that and this isn't an ad for MoTeC necessarily. I'm not saying they're <laughs> the only ones who have got this right, but it is very easy to look at a feature list when you're shopping for ECUs and go, oh, it's got a two-step or anti-lag launch control strategy. You know, obviously that's all I need. But when you actually start getting down to the nitty gritty, and particularly when you're dealing with cars that are operating at this level, you start to find that not all these features are created equal and some definitely either offer more flexibility to the tuner, which again is important, or just simply are more refined in the way they get the job done, which again just just allows you to do a better job. And in, in terms of that launch strategy, so... For you as the tuner, are you basically looking at your logging from how the car launches and then adjusting that throttle position versus vehicle speed target table uh, to mm-hmm. to try and get as much power to the track as possible without sort of driving it straight into wheel spin? Well, we have uh, so obviously I, I you know that uh, two years ago when we were at World Cup Finals, I actually was not on our dev. So in the Motec. You can have off-the-shelf what they call packages. So not every MoTeC, unfortunately, is created equal. Okay, so they're all – they all can have different features. And, and of course, we have – you know, John Reed Racing is who does our dev packages, as we call them. So then if I have an idea, he can implement it. Yeah. Um, And, of course, a lot of his ideas like his – if you were to buy his off-the-shelf package, what he has is throttle position versus boost error. Okay. And that gets a little more, but it'll do the same job that I'm doing. So he basically took my idea there, and that's how he implemented into implemented in for all of his regular customers, and then my customers. I currently don't have any of my, I guess that Brandon Huntley's Subaru, that nine second or eight, what eight eighty TX2K. So I have a Subaru that's using. Oh, I think the, we did a we did a video on that on our YouTube channel. Yeah, if people want to find out more about that. So yeah, so either way, it's a. From a tuner, that took me a little bit to get that. It's doing the same job in a different way, but to make sure mm. you aren't chasing your tail. Um, so I think I just got off track, though. We were talking about the MoTeC, the different packages. What was the question, well, I guess? We're, we're probably just just mentioning, I'll just put a little nice little ribbon around that. So the, the MoTeC M1 ECU, you could kind of consider it as just a, a box of electronics and it will do whatever it's programmed to do. So MoTeC, of right. course, offer their own what they call firmware packages, which tells the ECU how to operate. And then you've got 
other developers like John Reed Racing, they do production firmware where they've come up with a feature that they think might work better than how MoTeC envisaged. And then the third option there is, uh, have you, as you've called it, a dev package or development package where you can write custom firmware. So I just wanted to, to, to clear that yeah. up. I think I actually, so where we were going now is controlling power and first yes. gears. So, 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 um, I have a couple things there. So one is, you know, like we only run 60% throttle through first gear. So I guess that's my form of horsepower control. The other thing on the Motec that I'm using is a feature called race time. Mm-hmm. And so once I achieve five miles an hour vehicle speed, a timer starts and then I have a rev limiter, um, that I've created based off of that time. And that that's where I got myself in trouble a couple of years ago, though, is I wasn't having this, my normal throttle control. We were going 51 pounds of boost in first gear, and I was just smashing that rev limiter like mm. nobody's business. And then, of course, ro- the rockers were not appreciating that. And yeah. um, so then – so either way, that was uh, – so typically I always start off, though, I guess – like when I first was running, I think eight Oh in the Evo eight, you know, we were 50% throttle through first gear and then 60% throttle in second gear. And then I kept just giving a little more, a little more until I, and even those last seven seventies I ran, there was too much power in first and second. Like the yeah. car was getting pretty crappy. Um, the other thing that feature that we use some too, is so I also, I have that throttle versus speed in there. Then I also have throttle versus gear. Yeah. Um, so I can do that. And then another feature that's pretty awesome in the 10 is uh, if you are slipping the clutch and you're using the gear estimation, then it'll, as soon as the clutch slides, it'll fall to uh, the default Mm -hmm. gear position. And so then I actually then have another throttle setting to kind of help control clutch slip. When it goes to default, then the throttle will blip down to like 50% for a second. As soon as it knows it's back in gear, then it'll pop back up. Is that just to prevent it just burning straight through the clutch? Well, the, when we ran the 790 in the Evo 10, we were right on the edge of the – if we got the clutch too hot, it wouldn't hold. Okay. And so then we were really in a predicament of, you know, if we preloaded it how we wanted to preload it at the line to get the launch we wanted, we got the clutch too hot, and then we'd grab mm. second, and it would just blow loose. Okay. And then then we were getting where you dump the clutch, but then, of course, it's the car's hippity hops its way down the track. And so uh, either way, that's something when we ran that 790 in the 10 that was – if you look at the data log, you know, throttle went full for a second, and then you saw that it slid the clutch. Throttle went to 50% for, you know, maybe not even a second, and then the clutch grabbed, said it was in second gear, and the throttle popped back open. Yeah. Uh, so, again, so, I think it's just this is the sort of stuff that people don't get to hear about, the the little right. tricks that, that go on behind the scenes to actually get these cars to to go down the track and do the times they, they're doing. Yeah. Uh, now, a, a casual observer is probably asking themselves right now, well, if you can't put 51 PSI boost to the track in first gear, why aren't you just running less boost? I mean, that that's that's ob- the obvious question, surely. That's so, a, that, what, that, what that is a good question. So a lot of these precision turbos we run, depending on the turbo kit design, it's really challenging to get the boost control you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say some of my, uh, this car I drive is owned by a former shop manager named Atif, who um, I guess I've always, I'm a conservative guy. So I've had customers actually show up with wastegates welded clothes on me and stuff. So then I don't have a choice. (laughs) 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 So, uh, um, so I would say, I mean, in reality, 
we ultimately have a, a bad wastegate design that we're, you know, we don't have big enough wastegates or else, you know, our direction of piping, but it just seems all these cars that I deal with, you know, 50 pounds of boost as low as they go. Yeah. Okay. You know, which is kind of why I, we chuckle when it says it's on a wastegate line sometimes because <laughs> what, <laughs> what does that I, I mean? Think- one one of the strategies that I always try to employ, though, as well, and I, I, you might might be completely in disagreement here. When you start to get to these bigger turbochargers, they have a lot of inertia, even with ball yeah. bearing units. You, you're battling that inertia. So, yeah. if you had a situation where the car could leave hooked up with maybe 20 psi, that that'd be fine. And then you get to third gear, and all of a sudden it's going to take 50 or 60 or whatever it is. Right. And that's going to be a, a huge amount of time when that turbocharger has to spool up from 20 psi up to 50 plus. Right. So my strategy was always to leave the line with the turbocharger basically making as much boost as I wanted when the car was hooked up and yep. then control uh, the power management through first and second where it wasn't so that mm. basically we, you know, as soon as you in your case, put all the throttle back into it. We were using a lot of ignition retard through particularly yeah. second gear, put the timing right. back in it, and then it straight away hooked and you've got that boost. Right. So I, I personally found that was an effective strategy. I don't know what you think about that. Well, the timing's fine, but of course that can drive boost levels even yeah, higher. Yeah, it's a yeah. catch-22. So, so, right, so you're kind of going in circles there. And then I guess, you know, it might have been a little bit of an accident, you know, with all these turbos that run like, more boost than... Uh, they should in these different gears and me creating my throttle strategy. And of course, when I come back to that conversation of just lots of wastegate movements seem like they can hurt power. And then of course, if you're trying too hard, like the Evo 10, for example, we just did a little bit bigger ignition system on it, but that car, you know, if I go too much back pressure, it's real, real misfire happy car, you know? So I found that, you know, just running, 50 some percent wastegate duty is just a happy spot for that car. And so you start sawing that wastegate duty around. Um, But of course I would say that some of these cars, you maybe you would say middle of second gear, you would try to then run more boost. But unfortunately every car I touch has turbos that run more boost than they're supposed to. Yeah. Unfortunately back here in New Zealand, and I I don't think it's changed yet. uh, The, the drag racing fraternity here, uh, were a bit gun shy of uh, electronic throttle bodies and essentially the mm-hmm. ruling was unless the car came equipped from the factory with drive-by-wire throttle uh, cable huh. it was so unfortunately I never had that uh, tuning tool in my arsenal mm-hmm. when, when we were we were drag racing my Evo 3 but um, yeah. yeah, given the experience I have with drive-by-wire now I'd, I'd have one in a heartbeat if, if it was on offer. You know I guess for me the drive-by-wire was really um, you know I started I was tuned one of the first Motec GTRs. And of course the uh, Motec does all torque control. And if the Motec set up right, I mean, you can literally have boost control only the top port pulled wastegate line on the bottom, 40 pound springs in it. And it'll just seamlessly, if it can't use the turbo to control boost, it'll just seamlessly move to the throttle. Mm. And so I can take it you know, 2,500 horse GTR and I can literally make it 200 horse and you could drive it around a road course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and have the wastegates closed. And so of course, and on the GTR, you know, you have torque at the line, you have torque in first each gear, you know, then you have the transition at torque. And so then, um, just seeing how those, that throttle worked really kind of just got my head spinning, you know, and of course, John Reed doesn't have uh, a torque system like the GTR does, but, um, of course, I've created these systems that work 
how I want them to. You're kind of just in a roundabout way getting a torque-based model almost where the GTR right. package, you literally can ask for a specific amount of torque. You're, you're just achieving that aim in a different way using your throttle right. opening. Exactly, exactly. Right. So, uh, Just coming back to, to getting these cars to 60 foot and the, the power delivery and the throttle control is one thing, but um, one, one of the issues we, we sort of see is with a four-wheel drive car, uh, getting that balance between the car bogging on the line when the driver gets off the clutch and uh, basically just jumping straight into into wheel spin, that, that's really hard. And you're walking a, a bit of a tightrope there to try and balance those two. Um, is, is there anything you're doing with uh, slipper clutches or clutch slipper units to, to well, try I... and achieve... <laughs> A consistent result there? So, yes, yeah, so we're all over the place. Um, <laughs> so I guess at the beginning of this year, you know, looking at how the Subarus launch, one of our uh, theories, and it works well, is just flat out a shorter first gear. Sure. Um, you know, so the Evo 10, we just went to where like we have to shift fifth in the quarter. So um, so we did that strategy on the 10, which is successful. Um, the newest one, I guess, it's a product called the Clutch Tamer, um, mm-hmm. and of course they call it the Hitmaster. Um, we just did testing on that with the ten, and that's been—I'm pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the battle we run into with these all-wheel drive. So when you look at it, like, like these new all-wheel drive Hondas, you know that's a front-wheel drive car with rear-wheel drive assist. Yeah. Or you look at a GTR; it's the inverse of that. It's a rear-wheel drive car with front-wheel drive assist, and of course. So those cars can kind of, you know, blow the tires loose and then the all-wheel drive helps them. But of course, in the case of the Evo, it really is a 50-50 continually variable style car. So the pa- the power goes to the path of, of least resistance. Yeah. So on a prep track, you either got to slide the clutch and you actually don't get wheel. If you get wheel spin, either you're hitting it so hard that I guess you're going to get it. But if you're in that fine zone, the car just hops horribly. You know, yep. the power's jumping front to back and it's just um it's horrible and so uh getting so right now this clutch tamer we're pretty excited of course today on the dyno we just did the um pure slipper clutch on that evo 8 and um with it has the weights and all that and of course he set it up how i dreamed it should have been set up a year ago which with our my fear right now with it is it'll work how we want, but I'm afraid that the clutch is going to be too high in maintenance and we can't swap the thing between rounds. So to right. actually use the slipper feature is a, a challenge. Let, let's just break that down again for those who are maybe <laughs> drag racing aficionados. So uh, a, a slipper clutch is what we, or slider clutches are often called, that's what you'll see on like a, a proper uh, rear-wheel drive drag car with a drag racing transmission and it's got a combination of adjustable base pressure and then these centrifugal weights. So by adjusting those, I'm trying to give the really short version here, basically you can get a controlled and defined amount of slip when the, the driver sidesteps the clutch. So it's all about uh, sort of controlling the the relationship between wheel speed and engine RPM, keeping the engine RPM in, in its sweet spot without just blowing the tyres off and going straight into wheel spin. But as you mentioned there, they're high in maintenance and you'll see the teams running those sorts of cars. After every pass down the strip, the clutch will be out of the car, transmission out, and they have to reset that base spring, uh, maybe grind the clutch plates and reset or adjust the centrifugal weights as needed. So huge amount of work goes into setting those up. The clutch tamer, and I think if it's what I'm thinking, it's probably a similar system to we ran on our old Evo 3. You're talking here just about a hydraulic sort of... uh, 
reduct, uh, hydraulic uh, release valve that controls this, the rate at which a, a conventional hydraulic clutch is allowed to engage? Uh, no, this is much. Um, so what? It's actually like a regulator, and okay. so so. On the, I'll talk about the Evo 10 because right now yep. the numbers in the uh, in the slipper clutch are pretty crazy. So basically, sure. you push a clutch down, it goes 700 psi of clutch pressure, mm-hmm. you know, 680. Um, then when we start to preload at the line, we're down to about 650 psi. So at that point, though, we dump the clutch, and then I have the clutch chamber tuned to where it stops the clutch at 525 psi every time. Okay. Then at 10 miles an hour, that dumps again. Right. So you've and got so, real fine control over how the how the clutch is engaged in steps. Right. And the problem with the slipper, like the Magna slipper that we used, is to get it to launch smooth, it's just slow because mm. it's just letting the clutch out too slow. Yeah. Unless you've really put a ton of preload into it to where you're like basically burning, you know, two or three hundred horsepower down at the line, mm. you know, and then the slip ratio might be correct. Um, and then also the other issue with a lot of those is they're highly affected by temperature. So if you're out in a 70 degree day, and then all of a sudden you come around to a 50 degree night, you're continuously screwing with this valve. So right now, from what we can tell with this clutch tamer, the hit master is it's like an actual, like a big fuel pressure regulator or something, you know, when you dump it, it goes that 525. So we were able to cut three or four back-to-back low one three sixty foots out of the Evo 10 um, couple, uh, maybe a month ago and with this. Okay. And um, so and it's very seemingly we can tune it. And of course we're logging the fuel pressure. And so, um, so we're excited about that product. The other thing is since I do have our cars launching at such a low RPM, you know, if we were on, so we're on like 70, um, 76, 85s, yep. you know, on these cars, which is really a, pretty darn responsive turbo for the size you know but of course if we go to 8385s or 8685s then of course we're on a whole nother plane so i feel for what our cars are doing currently that we don't need the maintenance of a a true slipper clutch but uh if we end up going to a 8685 someday and we have to launch the car at 7000 rpm um or 8000 rpm then of course the slipper clutch might be would be the ticket and it sort of just sort of comes back full circle to what I was saying. You know, the, the turbo sizing, it's not just a case of putting the biggest, baddest turbo on it because that then has a knock-on effect to what you have to do in order to launch the car. Right. And while, yes, you might be making an extra 200 horsepower at the wheels just purely if you look at the dyno numbers, right. it can be hard, if not impossible, to actually get that represented in an ET in a mile an hour if you cannot get the thing to 60 foot anymore. Right, right. Yeah, I think... Uh like back in the day when we had an 8385 on the 10 for a second, I mean, you would shift that 9,900, 10,000 RPM and the thing would lose, even on a full throttle, you know, strain gauge shift, it would lose like 20 pounds of boost yeah. on the shift. Yeah. Or you would get just a singular misfire and yeah. it would lose 10 or 15 pounds. Like it was crazy, you know, we're like a the 7685, you know, um, you know, I, we've ran the 6785, which is that true street class turbo. And it's an amazing, uh, either way, I think very responsive for the power they make. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Let, let's just talk a little bit about the differences between the, the 4G63 and the 4B11. Uh, obviously, the, the fundamental differences there, the 4B11 gone from a cast iron block to alloy. 
uh, it's pretty common just about with any current generation engine and complete redesign of the whole engine including the cylinder head which is now dual Mybeck or dual continuously variable cam control so at, mm. at a high level what what do you sort of take away as the pros and cons of the 4B11 versus the 6.3? There's definitely a lot of pros and cons and you know man I like the 4B11 assuming the 4G63 does you know pound to pound for boost combo to combo it makes more horsepower mm-hmm. but the 4b11 seems like it has a wider power band probably because of the myvec yeah how it's functioning to me you know the head gasket um you know once you sleeve a 4b11 properly you know we do actually i know we did golden eagle sleeves forever and i don't know if we've changed to uh, darton does some of our sleeves also so either way i, I won't Go, but either way, once you go to a sleeve and you do the right step of the sleeve, then I, I could argue that it's better than a four G six three in that aspect because a four G seemingly most of our four Gs that get you know even past nine hundred to a thousand horsepower are not wet blocks anymore. The blocks mm. are completely filled. You know, we only have coolant running through the cylinder head. Some of that comes back to what Tony was Palo was talking about in his, where like the head gasket can leak, but it doesn't turn into a full torch job yeah you know yeah. because we're doing the copper and, and um so like our evo 10 at you know, 1200 some horsepower is still a fully wet block i've never done a 4g63 okay even above a thousand i guess we have some cars so probably a thousand fifty might be the highest i've ever gone on a wet block yeah 4g63 um you know, the 4G63 is plagued by oil pump problems at times, you know, um, like our 4B11 is still running a stock oil pump and the way it's mm-hmm. set up off the bottom, um, it's even if it ran dry, it's not like it's uh, the 4G63 oil pump has the timing belt on it with all yep. the loads. So the second that pump gets pissed off, it's the whole engine's not very happy. So seemingly the oiling system, um, you know, beginning early on, we had lots of valve problems, lots of, you know, part of that was limiter issues. Part of that was like, you know, manufacturers not having valve pockets, right? Like, you know, we do one mil over valves and then they only have the valve pocket, you know? So of course any old schooler says, well, why don't you clay the motor, you moron? You know, so I, I don't know. I guess we didn't. So, <laughs> so it's, it's always easy in hindsight. <laughs> right. So either way, you know, we started really claying the motors, running the camshafts through their position and figured out, the motors to where um, I really would, uh, I can argue the motors either way. I honestly don't feel like I could choose, you know, but I even look at Miles's Integra motor in a Honda, you know, I mean, um, uh, I would say all three engines are, have their pros and cons. Um, but I would say the rocker issue of the 4G630 is definitely a, a plaguing issue. You know, even the, the, you, it seems like everybody that races them deals with that issue from time yeah, to time. It, it, it's yeah. definitely a problem with anything that runs a, a non-shaft yeah. mounted rocker. And I mean, yeah. again, you can argue pros and cons of a, a, a rocker valve actuation versus a, a direct bucket actuation. But right. um, for, for reliability, uh, that, that bucket's probably not going to jump out of there anytime soon. No, no. And you know, the only time we initially thought we were having bucket issues in the 10, and that was only because we were having valve contact to the piston and then that horse was taking the buckets out yeah okay and um so once we've got through that the uh 
reliability of the 10 has been pretty good for us. You know, in a streetcar application, though, the 10, the motor does run a hotter exhaust temperature. It seems to be a little bit more of a, a, a meltdown happy motor. So a, a 4G63, you know, it's pretty standard. You know, you might blow a head gasket or you chuck a rod, you know. And honestly, for me, it's pretty uncommon to melt a piston or anything in a 4G63. Mm, but mm. I would say 4B11s, you can have cars that you've even detuned and you think you're good. And if the person essentially does a half mile pull or something big in it, it can end up with melted spark plugs and stuff a little more, a little more problematic. Okay. So there, so, but from what we're doing at the drag strip right now, uh, man, I, um, other than, I guess the 10 may is being a heavier platform. Of course, our Evo eight is extremely light. Um, the, I guess the partner in the car, it's kind of a confusing subject, but uh, he spent a lot of money on, you know, titanium and billet pieces and all right. kinds of stuff on that car where the, the 10 is slowly getting there. Yeah. Okay. Now, it, just in terms of that, my vehicle, the continuously variable cam control. So, I mean, definitely in a, a straight form, uh, continuously variable cam control does provide an unarguable wider power and torque band than fixed mm-hmm. conventional timing but the, yeah. the flip side of that is quite often when we go to the sort of cam profiles the the added lift and duration that we see in an all-out drag application where we might be operating the engine between maybe eight and ten thousand rpm is there's two sort of side effects with that one is often it limits or eliminates the ability to swing the cam uh, the amount that a normal continuously variable cam control system would and then secondly because while you actually have mentioned you launch these cars really low, so I'll get your take on it in a second. Normally, if you're operating only over a two or three thousand RPM rev band, the the actual benefit of that MyVec is somewhat diluted anyway. So, uh, are you still retaining the MyVec control in the drag application? Uh, I mean, by seven thousand RPM, we have a full the fully retarded yep. or you know the advance is to zero, so we're really only using it to spool. I do take. I mean, I have data logs that people wouldn't believe from the ten where the car's bogged to like 2,700 RPM and is still maintaining 33 pounds of boost and still runs a low eight. <laughs> that's, that's, you don't normally hear that. Right. So, um, you know, I think, but I've also, as a tuner, I've spent a lot of time where my, I guess that my tunes are pretty crispy in those areas. I, if I use that for a better term, you know, where I've really got them, I, I guess I focused really hard on that one, but I just seemingly the low RPM I felt like was the ticket, you know, mm. and of course our 60 foots weren't quite as good as some, but I mean, man, we had, I feel like we had some pretty darn good reliability, you know, it might only be one low one, four 60 foots. Um, of course now we're into the one threes with these new little products that we're using. Sure. Um, but either way, that's so. Yeah, so you're still you're still relying on that, and it is showing you a big advantage, as you've you've basically explained. Uh, yeah. Next topic I want to talk about is head gasket reliability, which which mm-hmm. is a, a topic that is uh, unfortunately near and dear to my heart. That that kind of for yeah. us with our sixty three program was always the the kind of the fuse really limiting the amount of power that we could make. Right. Uh, very seldom saw a sort of a an actual mechanical failure, but keeping the head bolted soundly onto to the block was was always problematic yeah. what yeah. Uh, what techniques are you using uh, in these both of these applications i mean right now we've all gone to the fire rings so then yep. it's a a copper gasket that's really just out there with uh, some special rtv to keep coolant from going where it shouldn't go and oil yeah and then um, we have the rings in there with uh, uh step height i 
I don't know all of our exact numbers on what the heights are. Um, mm. But so either way, the the 4G and the 4B11 are all on the fire ring setup. Of course, our older 4G 6.3 stuff, you know, we used to use a, I think it was a 12 thou stainless wire in the block with a copper gasket and a receiver groove. Yep. And, um, you know, every time you took those up, I mean, we still melted and torched heads, you know, of course you didn't know that the head gasket was even leaking until you saw, you know, <laughs> oil, oil splattered on the firewall or something, you know? Yep. Um, we also had to learn, have a learning curve of you know, when people go to weld those heads, of course, making sure you put them in the oven and get them up to temp and they're using the right rod and all that to weld those heads. So I feel like, you know, we've had plenty of head failures just from probably not welding up all the water ports correctly. Yeah, yeah, you know? fair enough. And, and uh, so either way, right now, the, um, you know, the Evo 8 or I mean the Evo 10, of course, we you know, started out with just a pretty big step. I want to say a three or 4,000 step in a stock head gasket. And that, uh, we got well, made well over a thousand horse on that. Um, but now we have the fire ring set up in that. And then of course on the 4G63, we do some other, like we have some like uh, step washers we do into the head. Okay. So, so that way the, cause a lot of times, I mean, you don't ever torque these things much past 90 some foot pounds usually cause you're going to, you should be digging into the head mm. but these washers help because a lot even when you blow a head gasket you take you pull all your nuts you can tell where the washers have been digging into the head yeah so either way we have like a custom our machine shop will drill out the head a little bit and they're like a step washer okay that goes in there so that's one thing we've done in the 4g63 um so yeah that's uh so the fire ring thing knows seemingly the, the way the ticket for us these days so when you've got these fire rings uh doing the ceiling and i'm assuming you've got those uh set into a, a groove on the top of the, the block is that is that right exactly okay yep, yep. Uh, do you find is that is that then a rock solid solution or is it still something that you're kind of walking a bit of a a, a fine line as to whether or not it's going to hold and, and needs consistent uh maintenance work I would say, you know, we kind of, when it comes to the 4G and the 4B11, we kind of hit our numbers pretty quick. You know, we okay. had some G, we had a GTR experience that made us work for it in getting that height correct. Okay. But yeah. um, either way, um, uh, yeah, it, it's been, I mean, I think if you use the same similar philosophy, anybody that's done stainless steel O-rings and heads before, you kind of know what you can and can't do. Yeah. So you're you're not really... It's nothing too crazy outside of that. Um, I think the beauty of the fire ring too is it's just, you know, you can do stainless rings in the head and MLS gaskets and receiver grooves, but you're still, you know, is everything lining up how you think it should be lining up? Mm, you know, mm, whereas yeah, there's this not a lot of room for error. Right. And you can't, it's not like you're a tiny man that can climb in there and really <laughs> see how it all went together, you know? So then the fire rings are just sealing nice up against the head and the head gaskets out there sealing the coolant and stuff. So, cause we do a lot of our four G's actually, we do like the, I think it's almost a 12,000 stainless wire in the head with an MLS gasket. Okay. And that's been really successful for our street cars. We kind of push, uh, when we were starting to do a lot of four G six fours with 87 mil bores, there was no way to really get a good stainless wire into the block. Yep. And so then we, for how far six out of the head, you'd think, well, how the hell does that even work? And it just does. Yeah. So it, it doesn't seem to leak. And, yeah, I think uh, uh, that's a 
pretty well trodden path for you know slightly right. lower power levels at this point yeah all right last question i want to ask you here um we're going a bit long so i'll try and keep this one brief you, you mentioned that the evo 8 you've moved to recently to a billet block and we're, we've yep. seen this has sort of taken the drag racing world by storm billet blocks for just about all of the popular makes and model of engines. So can can you give us your sort of rundown on at what power level with the 4G do, do you think the cast iron blocks really you're pushing pushing well, the limits I, and, and the billet's the way to go? You know, I guess I don't have an opinion because I don't think we needed the billet block for power <laughs> reasons. Yeah. Um, but the bill block from understand 70 pounds lighter. So it's actually the cheapest weight reduction mod wow. we've done on the car in a long time. Like I want to say there's four, uh, it's almost $7,000 in titanium on the car that might you know, only save X, you know, billet steering racks, billet knuckles, you know, so to just be able at this, um, uh, at this stage in the game, when you're trying to chase weight, um, the bill of blocks actually, I was actually teasing my guy Atif. It's like, we should have done a big, that's, it's the cheapest weight savings you could have done. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that's probably a side of it that most people wouldn't immediately consider. So no real necessity in terms of engine reliability. D- does it aid maintenance? I, I, I can't say at the moment. Um, you know, we really haven't ran that eight enough to where I would have a, a maintenance program or anything yeah, okay. to say. And then, you know, honestly – head gaskets here or there you know rocker issues but a lot half the time the head came off because a rocker came off and then it bent a valve or screwed up the head so the head's coming off for that reason nothing to do with horsepower yeah sure and, and um you know we've never cracked a cylinder um so i would think that the you know if we do chuck a rod supposedly the billet blocks are somewhat salvageable maybe because you can weld weld them up and do yeah. some stuff yeah and uh and individually replaceable liners as well Right, exactly. And so I'm assuming the head gasket's going to be better, without a doubt, on the billet block. But well, you're sealing uh, it against a, a much thicker deck surface on that block as well. Right, right. Yeah, but, makes uh, sense. And also, it's kind of getting the 4G parts is just getting harder and harder. Yeah, you know, it's and so it's just is something that you can buy and and get. So that is another value. Okay. All right, look, I think I think we'll wrap out up up here. We want to respect your time, Lucas, and we do appreciate uh, everything you've you've sort of shared with us so far. Um, yeah. We've got a couple of last questions that uh, we always like to ask our guests, and the first of those is: given the experience you've had now and, and what you've achieved in the industry, if you were looking back at a, a younger version of yourself, just uh, getting started and looking maybe to to break out into the industry, is there any advice you would would give to sort of fast track the career you've had i mean it's a pretty challenging uh things obviously i've you know forgotten more than i know (laughs) sometimes so um but i guess you know honestly hard work you know getting out there being able to um i mean i guess if you're wanting to be a tuner um you know, obviously all your guys' programs are actually awesome. Like I listened to your diesel one a while back. actually I think I even paid paid you for it. Um, appreciate it. Yeah. And so um you know, as I always tell people, if you got it and you're addicted to it, you're gonna you're gonna do it. Yeah, you yeah. know. And, if yeah, you're, I think and if passion you, can't be overlooked in this industry, uh, right? And and if you think it's fun and novel, but you're not doing it, it probably isn't gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, anyway. That's all I guess I can say. <laughs> all right. And last question for today: If people want to follow English Racing, uh, how can they do so? Where are you on social media? 
I guess Facebook is our most, um, so English racing on Facebook is our most active. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a website, EnglishRacing.net, but it's extremely outdated and we don't take care of it like we should. Sure. So, um, but either way, um, so I'd say uh, Facebook and then we do Instagram, of course, uh, English Racing on Instagram. And then my Facebook is fairly, I pretty much have a Facebook addition, addiction. So I'm always <laughs> posting everything publicly. So I guess if you want to see everything from race car to semi trucks to airplanes to birds i'm pretty random guy more airplanes <laughs> lately than race cars if i had to be honest which i'm not angry about <laughs> uh, i'm always it's whatever i'm doing next week it'll be world cup finals absolutely so it's there uh, will be a lot of uh pictures and stuff up on that so but uh, right. well anyway. that's probably a good segue to finish up with their uh, world cup finals coming up obviously uh, will have been run and done by the time this podcast actually makes it out, but uh, yeah. should be a fairly, uh, fairly intense lineup of cars there, and hopefully, maybe you can go a little bit quicker with both the Evo Eight and the Evo Ten. Yeah, that's the dream, always is. So, um, and then hopefully, maybe try to win a race too. But nobody seems to care about that anymore. Mm. <laughs> no, it's, it's always the PVs, right, and the world records. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Send it right. <laughs> All right. Thanks thanks a lot for your time, Lucas. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. All right. That concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.